In this series, we've met Emika and Annie, two emerging adults with mental illness, and Emika's mom, Erica. We learned about their something's wrong experience, finding treatment, family dynamics, and recovery. We met Matt, a high school teacher leading a student-run welcoming ambassador program, and Dr. Bonnie, primary care doc, managing the care of emerging adults with developing and full-blown illness with limited resources. You can see that I'm starting in the center with lived experience and spiraling out. Welcome to today's episode number seven in the series of the lived experience of another professional, Dr. Joel Hudgens, pediatric emergency physician at Boston Children's Hospital. Full disclosure, I worked from 2002 to 2008 at Boston Children's leading their patient family experience initiative. And I worked as a nurse paramedic in the emergency room at two rural hospitals in West Virginia in the late 80s, early 90s. Despite my experience in pediatrics and emergency services, I feel out of touch with the dynamics of treating an increasing proportion of youth with mental illness while also faced with exploding infectious disease incidents, COVID, RSV, and flu. Emergency care and pediatrics are near and dear to my heart. Let's see what we can learn with Dr. Joel Hudgens. Before we begin, I published my last episode on April 1st, 2023, the mashups of my chats with Casey Quinlan. Many subscribers reached out to me. Is Casey alive or has she passed? I purposefully left it ambiguous because I didn't know when people would be reading, listening, or watching. Besides, Casey told me several times over the years when I called her about various deaths in my family, why do funerals and memorial services need to come after death? Anyway... As of today, April 12th, 2023, Casey lives in a hospice with several visitors a day alert for short periods of time. Still snarky. Go to caringbridge.com, link in the show notes, for up-to-date information from Jan Oldenburg. Welcome to Health Hats, the podcast. I'm Danny Van Leeuwen, a two-legged cisgender old white man of privilege who knows a little about a lot of health care and a lot about very little. We will listen and learn about what it takes to adjust to life's realities in the awesome circus of health care. Let's make some sense of all of this. Thank you so much for joining us. We are in need of, of your perspective as a emergency room doc. 
Why don't you first introduce yourself by telling us a little bit about, so when did you first realize health was fragile? That's a really good question, actually. My my granddad was a, I grew up in rural Texas, in sort of East Texas, and my granddad was a general practitioner there. And so I still remember going around with him, actually, this was back in the early 80s, but he would do times where he would go to people's homes or he had attending privileges at various hospitals. And so I would actually accompany him on some of his trips and just had a, at the time, as I look back, I didn't realize it at the time, but I think what really interested me was his ability to connect with people in a very unique way. And I think as part of that, you asked, when did I learn health was fragile? I think that was probably my exposure to sickness and to people Mm -hmm. who died. And I think was something that really, that relationship just seemed so unique and really resonated with me and was something that I think ever since I did that with him when I was really young, it felt like that was the path I wanted to go down. So I would say that's really where it started. Yeah. Great. As an emergency doc, how do you, how is it that people come to you who have behavioral crises? mental health crises like what is it that you see that comes in the door yeah so i think to answer that you have to take a little bit of a step back where when i trained i did my residency in colorado i did my fellowship here in boston and this is we did not see this in this way uh, at all we certainly saw a few patients in, that were having mental health crises or behavioral health issues, but it was the minority of the patients. And I didn't really, to be honest, even think about it then. And what we've seen over the last really decade, but especially ramped up in the last four or five years, and then ramped up even more after COVID, has just been teenagers and pre-teenagers just in complete crisis. The question of why is so multifactorial, but I think specifically what we see are the pa- we see a cohort of patients that vary. So you can see patients who come in that are clearly suicidal and are high risk for suicidality. And those patients, obviously, you keep in the ER until they have a place to go because they're really not safe to be at home. Then you have patients who have behavioral dysregulation, and those may be patients who have other comorbid medical conditions or kids that may have autism or things like that, that the families are just really struggling to get behavior under control. We see kids that come in with eating disorders that are overlaid with things like depression or suicidality. We see patients who have issues at school and feel like school is unable to handle some of their behaviors or their behaviors at home aren't able to be handled. We see kids with severe anxiety and tick disorders, like all of these things we're seeing now. And we're seeing them more and more. The reason I think we'll probably talk about the various reasons, but it does feel like the ED, the ER has become the place to coordinate a lot of the care for these kids, which is not a role we were prepared for, I would say. I think we've responded as best as we can, but that shift or transition has really happened over the last few years. Wow. So what can you do to help? Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question, Danny. I think this is where we really run into 
uh, I think some, I don't want to say dissatisfiers, but this is an area where I think we feel a little bit unprepared or a little bit overwhelmed because an ER is not designed for what it's being asked to do for these patients. And that's not a fault of the patients or the ER. It's just a mismatch. And we've made solutions the best we can. And so what we can do is, and what we're very good at actually, is assessing, is this patient safe to go home? Is this patient high risk enough to need to be kept here in the emergency room with a plan to admit them to a psychiatric facility at some point? We're good at that initial evaluation for patients who come in crisis for discerning if this is a medical thing or a psychiatric, you know, that there's overlay, obviously, discerning the medical clearance of patients. We're, we're very good at that. That's a skill that I think most emergency medicine providers have. And so we can do that very well. We've set up some resources now to be able to, even for patients who leave, I think we're pretty good at providing some discharge instructions for providing some resources as an outpatient, for connecting people to, to things that they maybe may not have had access to before they came to see us. So I think we're good at those things. I think where we struggle is when you turn the ER into more of an inpatient facility and you keep behavioral health patients or mental health patients who are in crisis in the emergency room for weeks at a time, we're just not great at that. And we're getting better, but the reality is we're not docs that train for that. The nurses who are in the ER are not nurses that came into the ER with the idea that we're going we're gonna to round on behavioral health patients every day. We're going to keep them do therapy. We're going to titrate medications. All this stuff is a little bit not over our heads, but I think it is new to us. And I think those are areas that we struggle, but there are some things we do really well, but they're usually in that upfront kind of initial evaluation part of things. Is the, the reason that people are, you're providing inpatient services in an emergency setting that there there's a dearth of places for people to go yeah so it's i think it's the way i think about it is it's a little bit on both sides so the input to our facility so the input to the er has gone up so the number of behavioral health patients who are in crisis or mental health patients in crisis has increased there's no doubt about that you look nationally and that's true across almost every pediatric hospital so that number has increased some people have argued, I don't know that it's totally clear, that the severity of illness of those patients is also higher. And so things like the degree of suicidality or the degree of their crisis, however you define that, is seems to be more than it was 10 years ago or even five years ago. So that means those patients need more help and they need probably inpatient level of care more than maybe they did in the past. The other piece of it is exactly what you said on the output side, where there's just not as many beds and there's not as many places for these patients to go. And that's a combination of uh, just staffing issues. That's a maybe space. We just don't have the space for it. You can't get the nurses and docs there. You can't get enough social workers there to open all of the beds. So I think there's a dearth of out of rooms on the far end to get them to get those patients to where they need to go and so that leaves this one place and we function as almost a holding center for those patients until those beds open up which can be like i said weeks it's really wild 
I'm just thinking about being the nurse or the doc. And it must be so disheartening to know what somebody needs and not be able to provide it. I remember in my my ED and paramedic days where I'd opened my jump kit or the crash cart and something would be missing. Yeah. And I could deal with whatever came through the door. But when I was missing an important tool, that really threw me for a loop. Yeah. Really emotionally got me. And it seems like you guys are dealing with that day in and day out, like knowing what you need to do and not having the tools to do it. That's just must be. Like, how do you stay yourself sane? Yeah, <laughs> in 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 that wildness. It's really it's just hit it exactly on the head, which is that the thing that I don't think we're accounting for, at least we now are beginning to understand more about it, at least at our facility in Boston. The the toll that it takes on providers is actually substantial. And it's exactly what you're saying, which is we know we aren't the right place for these patients. We're not doing the best things for them, right? Nobody thinks the best thing for you if you're suicidal is to sit in a dark ER room by yourself with no phone or no contact for two weeks. Nobody thinks that's the right solution. Solitary confinement. Yeah. It's, and we, again, it's caught us off guard a little bit. I think we've tried to add some things and some Mm -hmm. therapy options. And we're trying to do this stuff, but it's also in the setting of you're trying to do that amidst all of these sick patients medically who need attention and and acuity and all this other things. I do think you're so right that it definitely takes a toll on people when you feel like, or when you're restraining a child, you're having to give them medication involuntarily or hold them down because they're aggressive and in some ways, you're concerned that your environment is triggering that, and yet you continue to have them in that environment. That's a really upsetting thing for people. And I do think it's caused a lot of, we've had a ton of nursing turnover, not just here, nationally. And I do think this that is part of it. I think people feel like we're not doing the best we can for these patients, and it's mm-hmm. really hard to be just be a part of that and watch it. I think the other alternative is you can try to make it better. And that's what we're doing, but there's right. no doubt that it, it is, it sits hard with us. So now a word about our sponsor, a bridge record your healthcare conversations with doctors and other clinicians with a bridge, push the big pink button and record, read the transcripts or listen to clips when you get home. Check out the app at abridge.com, A-B-R-I-D-G-E.com, or download it on the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Let me know how it went. What are the, the system interventions or actions or collaborations or what needs to 
what do you think would help this? Yeah, it's it's a great question. A lot of that stuff, as you might imagine, the ER is we're the downstream, right? So when they get to us, in my opinion, at least, things have already failed because <laughs> I'm not saying you should view a visit to the ER as a failure, but in some ways, there are some kids who are so severe that that should happen. But there's a lot of kids that if they had more help upstream, if there were more mental health providers, if they had easier access to mental health providers, if there, uh, if the supply was more, I think you would avoid a lot of what we see where kids mm -hmm. end up where we are. Yeah. From our standpoint, I think that setting aside specific observation units that are solely devoted to mental and behavioral health patients where the care is standardized and the multidisciplinary aspect of this is really important where you've got to have psychiatrists in the emergency room you've got to have mental health workers in the er you got to have behavioral response teams in the emergency room and to be able to do all of these things you really do need a devoted space because of the things i just said if your department's full of acuity you can have nurses pulled for other things for sick patients who need care right then. It's just, it's not ideal for that. So I think from our standpoint, we can certainly design the care model a little bit differently where we're delivering care in a more standardized, less variable way. And then on the other side, so that's the input and then the ER and then the output. It seems easy to say, and there are subtleties to this that I'm sure I don't know, but if we could staff the beds that we do have, if there was enough reimbursement to to promote people to go into these various fields that care for these patients, then that would be a huge win. And we're certainly trying to add physical space up here, at least at Children's, for this. The depressing thing is to think we're going to add all of these rooms and potential facilities, and yet if there's nobody to staff those things, it doesn't really matter. And so there's certainly investments that need to happen at that level, the end result of this too. Yeah. I think all three of these areas need work. I'm overwhelmed. Yeah. It is interesting. I've talked to, as I was telling you earlier, maybe a dozen people already. Yeah. And what's interesting so far is that when I talk with people who are part of the healthcare system, it feels really depressing and hopeless. Yeah. But when I actually talk to some of the people with lived experience, their parents, some of the community organizations and some teachers who have done some inspirational stuff it feels a lot more hopeful yeah and that makes me crazy yeah yeah people are able to there are islands of really good stuff yeah and then there are just so much that isn't yeah and so the people who like why am i doing this why am i 
I'm health hats. And what I advertise myself as is I know a little bit about a lot of healthcare and not yeah. a lot about that much. And and like so, an ER doc. <laughs> what's that? Like an ER doc. We know a little bit about a lot. Not yeah. True. I felt yeah. that as an ER nurse. Yeah. So I think about I'm never really gonna be a pediatric expert. I'm never gonna be a behavioral health expert, although I've worked both at Boston Children's yeah. and in behavioral health, mostly administratively. Yeah. And I'm old. And <laughs> I'm at the end of my career. I'm not in the beginning or the middle. Yeah. And I can give it a face that these are real people. Yeah. That this is happening to. The, there's these, it's parents, it's young people, it's doctors, it's nurses, it's people, peer support. Yeah. It's, it, these are real people doing real work. Yeah. And just better understanding that real work. Yeah. So what do you think about my, my audience is really varied. Yeah. Patients, caregivers, clinicians, data geeks. So what do you think, what advice do you offer as people are struggling, learning, advocating? Yeah. What do you think? Yeah, it's a great question. I think that the biggest thing, and I say this because I've had these experiences with my family, I just don't think people understand the degree to which this is affecting patients and caregivers and the care team, the providers. My, I say my family, I've talked to my brothers about this, and they just have, they're not, neither one is in medicine, and they just have no idea. They don't understand that in our emergency room, there there were times in the last year where of our 45-bed main ED, 34 patients were behavioral health or psych borders. And oh, my God. So you're then trying to – and so that clearly is a stressor. And then we've had record volumes with all the various viruses that are going through flu and RSV and all these other things, COVID. And so we're now funneling these huge volumes through tiny spaces. We're creating off-site spaces to see patients that are not designed for emergency department care. So I just think until people talk about that stuff, it really, you just don't, you don't appreciate it or understand it. I think parents of kids know, especially older kids understand that there's more of this that's happening, I think, anecdotally from their children and stuff. I think that this stuff just like this, where you're talking about it and you're sharing people's individual stories is really key because if there's no attention to it, nothing will change. <laughs> I'm convinced of that. I, I think you're doing amazing work just by talking about this and having a series on this, and that's really key. In terms of other things, you know, there's we've done a little bit of research where we've started to look at e-visits for, obviously this has been done, but emergency room visits for behavioral health problems and shown how that's climbed. And predictors of restraint use. We just did a paper that looked at 
Are their patients more likely to get restrained than other patients while they're in the emergency room and eating disorder volume and how that's changed? For the data geeks on the call, there's lots of, this is still so relatively new, even though it's not that new anymore, that there's still room to do things around data and to show different trends and stuff and to show what the impact of this really is on care. And so that I think is really key. And then at the provider level, I think sharing like what different emergency rooms are doing to do to treat these patients and what are the care models that are unique or novel and publishing those things, getting those things out there so that we can learn from them, I think is really important for something like this where we're all looking around, what's the right way? <laughs> In different hospitals do it, everybody does it a little bit differently. And so is there a model that works better? And disseminating that in some way, I think, would be super helpful and encouraging collaboration would be really helpful. Just think about the 12-bed hospital that I was the emergency room nurse for, and I'm, yeah. I have no idea if they're even still open and yeah. how they would be managing this insanity in yeah. central West Virginia. Yes. Uh, I can't even imagine. And that's honestly, Danny, that's the, those are the providers that I really worry about is the big pediatric hospitals. It's a huge issue, but we have resources to figure this out and expertise. It's the community ED that has eight beds and four of them are taken and they don't right. like, they have no psych there. They don't have resources. So yeah. you're exactly right. That's where I lose sleep, honestly, is those community emergency rooms and the care that they're being asked to provide that they're just not equipped for. Yeah. Yeah. Well, have a good holiday. All right, Danny. Thanks a lot. It was nice to meet you. Likewise. Take care. Right. Emergency departments best provide temporary front-loaded care. Assessment, triage, stabilization. Move them in, move them out. As a paramedic ED nurse, I appreciated the temporary nature of emergency patient-family relationships. Boarding and ongoing treatment of acutely ill people was not our forte. When I moved on to intensive care, it took some adjustment. While I enjoyed the longer period of care, I had to draw on a different set of relationship and planning skills. Dr. Joel mentioned the stress of staff unable to provide the best care they know their patients and families need. We've heard this theme before during our chat with Dr. Kiami Mahania. I can't help but wonder how COVID burnout combines with the increasing private equity taking over emergency department staffing and how that impacts the treatment of emerging adults with mental illness. Perhaps we could do an episode about that in the future. Thanks to Dr. Joel for this glimpse into a day in the life of a pediatric emergency physician. Our next an eighth episode in the Emerging Adults with Mental Illness will feature COAST, Coordinated Opioid and Stimulant Treatment, a network of specialists to provide prevention, treatment, and recovery services instantaneously. Here's Dorothy Cuccinelli.
we cover the eight counties in that region. So to the Massachusetts border and west and then up north to what's called the North Country to the Adirondacks and south to the Catskills. So it's a pretty big geographic area. It has quite a mix of demographics, everything from people in the cities to very rural locations. And so one of the challenges that I think we've been able to meet pretty successfully is establishing ways for people to access this program regardless of where they live. It's pretty unique in the sense that, as Kelly just said, um, it's a phone line. So people can call this number 24-7-365, and they are connected immediately with a prescriber, so someone who can write a prescription and get that person connected to medication-assisted treatment right away. Prescription goes to the pharmacy if the person doesn't have the means to pay for that medication, our grant, our program also covers that. And we can even arrange for transportation to get the prescription to that person. So it's really, we use the term wraparound services a lot in the mental health field. And this is a form of that because it really covers a lot of different bases that individually sometimes aren't there. And if any one of those pieces are not in place, the whole thing doesn't work. I host, write, edit, engineer, and produce Health Hats, the podcast. Kayla Nelson provides website and social media consultation and disseminates the podcast across social media. Leon Van Leeuwen edits the article grade transcript. Joey Van Leeuwen supplies musical support, composing, and arranging, especially for the podcast intro and outro. I play Barry Sachs on some episodes alone and with the Lechuga Fresca Latin Band. I'm grateful to you who have the most critical roles as listeners, readers, and watchers. See the show notes, previous podcasts, and other resources through my website, www.health-hats.com and my YouTube channel, at dvanloo. D-V-A-N-L-E-U. Please subscribe and contribute. If you like it, share it. See you around the block. <laughs>